You're listening to Latin Waves with your host, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Michael Libowitz. He's a renowned professor at Simon Fraser University. He's Professor Emeritus of Economics at Simon Fraser University. And he has written many books, among them one of my favorites, Between Capitalism and Community. Thanks for being with us today. No problem. I should mention that, first of all, I, I, I write as a Marxist economist and a socialist, and that theme has been brought out in a number of books previously. One was Build It Now, Socialism for the 21st Century. Um, another was um, The Socialist Alternative, Real Human Development. Uh, and another was um, The Contradictions of Real Socialism, The Conductor and the Conducted, um, which is about the Soviet-type economies. Um, many of these books, aside from the my first book, which is on Beyond Capital, um, the political economy of the working class, many of these books emerged out of my experience um, in Venezuela, or reinforced by my experience in Venezuela, which we can talk about at some point, because uh, I was there for seven years as an advisor. But let me uh, tell you a bit about this book, Between Capitalism and Community. It's a criticism of capitalism, not surprisingly, but not only for its exploitation, but also for the deformation of human beings. Um, and it's an argument for building a new society uh, rooted in solidarity, a society which I call community. Um, and this involves a critique of neoclassical economics and the capitalist society it's based upon, but it's also a critique of determinist um, and economistic trade uh, Marxian analyses. In particular, it asks the question, what kind of people are produced within a particular social relation? If we look at Marx's capital, we see him describing capitalism as producing atomistic, alienated, deformed human beings who look upon the requirements of the system as self-evident natural laws. In other words, people who are produced to think of capitalism as common sense. And Marx goes so far as to say the nature of the system is such as to support capitalism in perpetuity. Well, that sounds very strange for anyone who hasn't had any experience in thinking about Marxism, because presumably everyone says, well, it's going to be subject to its contradictions, it will collapse, etc., like that. And that's an argument that I you know, reject entirely. So if you have a system which creates people who look upon capitalism as common sense, the question is, how does such a system come to an end? Um, and, you know, many Marxist economists say, well, crises, uh, the falling rate of profit will create a crisis, or overproduction will create a crisis. I look at that, and I, I look at the what Marx has said in, in both Capital and in his preparatory notebooks, that, in fact, he recognizes negative feedback. In other words, Capital does not just sit there and, you know, and die when there are crises. It responds. It responds and reacts and attempts to return to the process of reproduction, even though it is 
faced with periodic crises. Um, and I argue that the only crisis you know, that one can see in Marx you know, of the a crisis of capitalism that does not seem to have automatic negative feedback is the crisis of the earth system because both capital and the workers produced under capitalism tend to support accumulation, continued growth, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, so then that raises the question, well, again, under those conditions, what can possibly bring that system to an end? And here is one of the things I've stressed since my first book, but I keep coming back to it and learning more about how to present it, and that is what Marx called the concept of revolutionary practice, which is the simultaneous changing of circumstances and human activity or self-change. In other words, societies under these conditions, society both changes, you both change circumstances and you change yourself, transform your process in the process of activity. In other words, we can think of, well, there are, every activity involves two products. It's the change in things or circumstances and the change in human beings. And that second product, the change in human beings, is often forgotten. We see certainly the second product of capitalism by itself is that deformed human being, that animistic human being. Um, But the process of activity, the process of protagonism on the part of workers and all human beings is one which transforms them. It's one in which their capacities increase. Um, And so in other words, what becomes central from this perspective is the issue of protagonism. And nobody really described this better, the issue, than Friedrich Engels. And I just want to quote something from Engels when he wrote about the workers' battle over the 10 hours workday. He said, the working classes in this agitation found a mighty means to get acquainted with each other, to come to a knowledge of their social position and interests, to organize themselves and to know their strength. The working man who has passed through such an agitation is no longer the same as he was before, and the whole working class, after passing through it, is a hundred times stronger, more enlightened, and better organized than it was at the outset. In other words, when you have protagonism, when you have this process of struggle, you in fact find that the working class and all people are transformed, not only individually, but also collectively. And that was something actually in the Venezuelan Bolivarian Constitution, which talked about participation and protagonism changes people both individually and collectively, mm. etc. Um, so I... there's that whole focus on human development in this process. That raises the question, okay, capitalism sit back and do nothing. What happens when it starts to face a working class which is unified, a working class which is stronger? Well, capital's answer is divide the workers. Find ways to separate them in order to defeat them. And Marx talked about this, not in Capital, but in an article. He said, well, look at the English workers and the Irish workers. They are divided. They have antagonism to each other. And that antagonism is the secret of capital success, and capital knows it. In other words, dividing the working class, separating them, dispersing them in one way or another, is a way to 
weakens workers and supports the reproduction of capital. And so I say inherent in the logic of capital is to divide the working class. Mm. Now, many Marxists never say that. They say, they look at capital and they say, well, the logic of capital is to increase productive forces. If you're just increasing productive forces, I argue in the book, then in fact the effect of increased productivity is that workers are the gain, the gainers of this. They are the beneficiaries of increased productivity, falling prices, and you know, rising real wages. So in other words, the only way that capital can, can prevent that situation, which of course is contrary to its requirements, is to divide the working class. One of the points you raise is so on point. You know, I, I grew up in Latin America during the war, the dirty wars. That's, you know, I was a child born in war. And one of the things that I remember distinctively was the power of unions in the community. You know, most people were starving because the the minute the war hits, the inflation just seemed to happen almost overnight where you could buy a Coca-Cola the day before for 25 cents and the next day, it was a dollar fifty, and and so the unions were the only way that people would have like access to affordable food. They had co-ops and things like that, and that experience really stayed with me. How in the midst of what seemed a crisis, you know, because war is traumatizing to everybody, but in the midst of that, the people who were engaged, doing something, mobilizing the community, doing something, had a very different experience of the war than the people who were simply paralyzed by the effects of war, the people who uh, were just frightened and scared. And I love that you point out that when we are participants, you know, not only in investigating why is this happening, you know, how is this unfolding, what part do I play, that that recognition that it's not just the environment but also our participation that affects how things turn out is important to me. And I wonder if you could talk, because... You know, you make it so clear, you know, the vision of Mars has been pre presented to us as if we own the means of reproduction, then we'll be free. But you're saying it's not just that, it's also the antagonism that is inherent within the capitalist system. What was your experience in witnessing the organization, say, of the community councils in Venezuela? The experience of, of seeing the communal councils um, in Venezuela was really exciting. Now, I had been arguing for a while about the importance of protagonism and revolutionary practice of transformation of people through their activity. But when you went to Venezuela and went around to the communities uh, where it had communal councils, you could see this right, you know, right before your eyes, uh, how they were transformed, the pride that people had. So you'd have a case, you know, where the communal councils, which were composed of in the urban areas of 200 to 400 families um, and they were small enough to to um, have their general meetings in the whole the assemblies of the whole then they would create from that a communal council uh, with representatives who would not be you know the representatives that we normally think of in terms of democracy say in Canada no these were people who were called voceros they were the voices of the communal councils, but they were part of the communal council. So when you got the communal councils during Chavez's period would put in a request for funds for a project that they had identified. 
And they would identify, you know, f for example, very often, the necessity to build housing in their area. There was a point when we went around, this is myself and my wife, Marta Harnecker, and a few others who were working for our institute, um, that we went around to these communities and they would tell you, well, we got money for 10 houses. And we took this money and we stretched it to build 12 houses. And we did this by, you know, such and such ways, etc. And you'd go to another community, and they'd say, we got the money for 10 houses, and we made 15 houses out of that. Because why do you, in a small house, you don't need two bathrooms. So they would, in fact, build these places. Or you'd go to areas where they had taken money for improving the roads, and always this enormous sense of pride. Well, you know, that was certainly the whole process that one could see in the communal councils. Now, Marta did her work primarily in the area of participation and w worked with the communal councils. I was specifically working on the side of working, uh, workers' control. So I went around to many of the community, to the workplaces that had been seized by the workers um, and would talk to them and, you know, discuss this. And one could see in certain of those, you know, cooperatives now running um, the workplaces, you could see in some cases a real development, especially an understanding of every part of the process of, the, of producing the particular items they were producing. Some co cooperatives were not so successful and continued to be struck by, uh, you know, overwhelmed by a focus on self-interest. And later I can tell you some of those stories, you know, um, that might be of particular interest. The whole Neoclassical theory, which is you know, models capitalism, is based on the assumption of atomistic, self-seeking you know, actors, that everyone is out there for themselves, etc. But Marx, when he wrote, looked at the latest you know, ec works in economics, and he interpreted them and drew from them. Well, at the same time, at this time, we could say that there are experimental behavioral economists who have been pointing out real problems in that neoclassical model of the atomistic, you know, human being. And one of the best e examples of this in one study was a case of a, of a daycare. And the daycare workers decided that people were, you know, coming late to pick up their children. So they decided to put a penalty, monetary penalty, on people who came late. Well, neoclassical theory would tell you, okay, people will respond. They'll stop coming late. Well, in fact, it worked just the opposite. More came late and never came back to the you know, uh, point of, of picking up their children at the same time, at the proper time. And why? Well, they said, okay, coming late is just another commodity I can purchase. I, I, I now don't have to worry about the issue of whether it's fair or not. I'll just pay the, the, the fine. And there are examples after examples of that, you know, which indicates that it's wrong to think of people as, as an atomistic individuals who have no past, who have no intention of, you know, future, who live, you know, as atoms. In fact, people do have a sense of fairness. They have a sense of, you know, community, but that sense is violated and crowded out effectively by offering money as a tra you know, uh, for doing something as opposed to focusing.
focusing on what is fair and what do you think is appropriate behavior under those circumstances. People live as if they have a past with other people and anticipate having a future with those other people and that under these circumstances they want to be treated or viewed as good people. So that suggests um, you know, that there are two motives. There's the solidaristic community-oriented motive, and then there's the self-interest motive. And one of the things that one writer, uh, um, Samuel Bowles, wrote in a book called The Moral Economy, was that you know the tendency was if you offered a material incentive, um, then what would happen would be that that would go against the solidaristic uh, incentive. And his argument was, well, under these circumstances, and his, his subtitle at one point in one of the chapters was on how good monetary incentives are no replacement for good citizenship. Mm-hmm. Um, and he looked to the whole question of, well, let's bring them together. Let's find a proper mix of you know, material incentive and moral incentive. I looked at that and I said, well, no, the fact that there are these two quite different perspectives on how to live in a society points to two different organic systems, which systems which produce and reproduce their own premises, a system of capitalism, which reproduces the capitalist and that oriented you know, wage laborer, and a system of solidarity, or what I call community, which produces people who are solidaristic, who care about each other, etc. So that was the, that's then the question of between capitalism and community, because these two systems, in fact, coexist. They coexist, and not only do they coexist, they also at the same time uh, infect each other, deform each other, um, interpenetrate uh, each other. Between capitalism and community, we are in this mixed situation. And so the question then becomes, well, all right, fine. How do we build community? How do we move from capitalism to community? Um, and, of course, the answer is protagonism. Mm-hmm. Uh, in every sphere, in the community, in the workplace, but also struggles over racism, struggles over patriarchy, struggles over climate, struggles over immigration, etc. All of these struggles build capacities. All of them change the people engaged in them. And that becomes the basis of a new society, the potential for a new society. Chavez called the communal councils and the workers' councils cells of a new socialist state, a new state which emerges within the context of the old top-down state. Um, and, but that, of course, raises, you know, the, even though the people are transformed by the protagonism, it doesn't happen in a void. It doesn't happen in a neutral situation. These people who are transformed by their protagonism are also being formed by capitalism, formed by the focus on self-interest, etc. And one of the things I write about is what I call the paradox of protagonism, because the protagonism of a particular group increases certainly solidarity and common nature of the people within that group, but at the same time, it separates from other groups. You know, a community which has great successes in developing its community and its community sense looks at the next community as different. They're outsiders, etc. 
because those are the people who have to change, who have to develop unity, who have to develop solidarity beyond their small groups. Mm. So that raises the question, how can we change things? One of the things that... as you speak, was just music to my ears, is the idea that not only do we grow in strength and capacity through our struggles, but that we also can learn to expand those circles to include other groups. You know, I'm always reminded how in North America, you know, we see how the idea of nation states or states, you know, can be a great force to uniting people, but it can also be dividing, right, within, you know, indigenous people feeling displaced and constantly aggressed against within an Anglo-Saxon community that doesn't see itself as related to others. And and so this idea of othering people, how essential that has been for capitalism to create rifts among workers you know we have so much in common we're all being exploited and yet we're all fighting each other while at the same time we're being expunged you know of every ounce of labor we can give the system so um i wonder if you could say a little more about the way the the society you know the way that this adherence to laws that are unjust not only exacerbates the exploitation and the way that people are being reproduced in an indeformed ways, right? Like we're constantly being deformed by our adherence to unjust laws that allow us to see inequality and injustice, like, you know, bringing, you know, uh, foreign workers just for the season and being paid extremely under pay while doing the same labor that other workers here are doing. One is the question of, you know, certainly capital relies upon the state uh, to enact laws which facilitate the ability to separate uh, workers. Um, and another is the extent to which capitalists in their own you know, uh, functioning try to do that. So, for example, the recent you know, uh, strike over Kellogg's, um, one of the main things that was being posed, struggled against, was the two-tier you know, wage system in which young workers would be coming in to perform the same labor same as people who had been there for many years, but a far lower wage level and with very little ability to move out of that situation into, you know, the, the higher tier, etc. That's a way of dividing the working class. And that's the, the union in this particular case recognized that and fought against it. Um, it still has the two-tier system, but it's reduced it, it quite significantly um, as a result of the several, year, several weeks of strike. Finding ways to fight against divisions is absolutely critical. But, you know, some people, Marxists, many of them, will say, or political activists will say, well, you know, the struggle or focusing on the struggle against racism That just simply separates workers. We shouldn't have those kinds of struggles. All workers should be joining together uh, against capital and not going off in these separate spheres of a battle against sexism, a battle against immigration, etc., or pro-immigration, etc. And that question of, well, those struggles, you know, are digressions from the real struggle, forgets about the human being that human beings, through their struggles, as opposed to 
passivity, you know, sitting around and just complaining. Through their struggles, change. And it's those changed people who are most able to make the link to other struggles um, and to engage in solidarity. But the thing I want to stress is it's not spontaneous. It doesn't happen automatically. And that then raises the question, how do you unite workers? Um, how do you uh, break through the separate silos? Um, how do you develop a real challenge to capitalism? Mm -hmm. So how do we do it? Well, um, one of the things uh, is uh, that I argue, and it's something I've argued in, in a few books, but most explicitly in, in this one, is my last chapter is called The Political Instrument We Need. Um, and it's an emphasis on the need for a political instrument or political instruments which can be involved in all different struggles and can point out the importance of unity, the, the links between struggles, uh, etc. And when I say, you know, political instrument, um, it's not the kind of political instrument that one also often has simply described as the vanguard party in which, you know, the party at the top selects a position or, and then uh, and selects its supporters um, and then gives instructions, etc., downward. I would say that certainly one of the things that originated in many respects in Latin America is the perspective uh, that put, was put forward by Paulo Freire. Um, his whole emphasis on rejecting the approach to education, which involved bank knowledge, a banking concept of, of knowledge, in which those at the top are the ones who have the knowledge and assume that they can simply give things to people who don't have knowledge. Um, his focus is on the importance of a horizontal dialogue of the teacher learning from the student that there's this no hierarchical uh, approach here. And, and that's also what Marta, Marta Harnecker uh, emphasized as well, the absolute importance of building a political instrument in which people you know, learn, listen and learn, rather than a militaristic concept of a political instrument in which the people at the bottom don't really develop their capacities. Uh, so if you think in terms of the whole question of what is central is how to develop the capacities of people, you need and, and also the, recognize that the understanding of the linking of issues, linking of, of uh, struggles, etc., is not spontaneous, then you need a political instrument that can help to bring that knowledge to people um, by listening and learning from the people themselves. That's, I think, one of the things that always struck me about uh, Chavez, you know, which was the extent to which he listened to the response of people. Uh, he spoke to them regularly in his Allo Presidente uh, sessions in which he would always have people make points and he would respond to the points, etc. He was truly remarkable in terms of his understanding that, you know, uh, one of the things he often said was, you can't solve the problem of poverty unless you give power to the poor. Mm. Um, so he was extremely uh, significant in that respect. Um, and to a very significant extent, his heritage lives on not so much in the government that exists there now, but in the communes, um, in the rural areas, and also in some of the cities like in Corinth.
you so much for being with us. Thank you for listening to Latin Waves. Latin Waves is an independently produced syndicated radio program made available for free to campus and community radios and also to the world at latinwavesmedia.com. Please visit the website to hear previous shows, hear about upcoming events, and consider becoming a member for as little as $1 per month.